you would, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6 as we continue to go through this wonderful letter to the church in Rome together that we get the opportunity now to experience, to read for our edification and for our sanctification, as you heard from our brother earlier. I've already had several people come up to me um, over the course of this week and say, are you planning on going through all of Romans 6 together? To which my response is, well, that is what the strange fellow who put together the sermon calendar said I'm doing, so I guess that's what I'm doing. Um, On the other hand, I got done practicing on Thursday and the sermon was an hour and a half long, and I thought, well, this ought to be fun. So we are not doing an hour and a half, for those of you that just panicked, by the way. Um, but we are going to be looking at all of chapter 6, and uh, chapter 6 has a lot of content in it. And so this morning, as we look at this wonderful passage, we're going to be looking at it from a high elevation. We're going to be just looking at it as, a, as broad strokes of what uh, the Spirit and what the Lord is trying to convey to us this morning through chapter 6 uh, as we do this. It's interesting Uh, As we come to chapter 6, Paul is continuing to talk about the gospel, but he is turning his attention just momentarily from the process of the gospel to now what? If we have understood our need for the gospel and we understand that Christ has made the gospel, brought the good news to us and now offers it as a free gift that we are received through faith, then what do we do now? How does that change things? And that's the scope of chapter 6. And so we're going to be looking at that together. So hopefully by now you found Romans chapter 6. If you would stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word. This is a longer passage. So as always, if you need to take a break in the middle, we understand that. But uh, would you honor the Lord with me now? Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness." For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? 
Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God, thank you, who were once slaves of sin, have been obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, what a wonderful thing it is to worship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to come together as one family and one body, to bring our collective focus on the grace and the mercy that you have bestowed upon us, that we receive by faith. Lord, to come to your word and to know that we are yours. Father, I pray this morning, Lord, that you would help us not to just hear your word, to not just merely go through the motions of listening to a sermon, to some individual rambling, but that we would come desiring to hear from the creator of the universe, our king, to hear your will and to go and to do it. Father, we pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As is certainly expected, if you have been with us over the course of the last seven weeks as we have been looking through Romans, it's important for us to review. Um, And we're not going to spend a ton of time reviewing this morning because we do have a lot to get to in chapter 6. But just as a reminder, and for those that maybe haven't been with us since we have looked at this letter of Romans, Romans is written more than maybe any other, uh, any other letter in the New Testament. It is written in an essay format. Chapter 1, 16, and 17 act as the thesis for the book, declaring the power of the gospel for salvation. And then the rest of the book are the supporting points that Paul builds one upon the other to show us our need for the gospel and the power of the gospel to save and then how we are to live in light of that. And so when we review of where we have been so far as we review chapters 1 through 5, we see first that we have all broken God's law, that there's not a single one of us that has not 
looked at God and said, I can do it better. And we have gone and we have said things that we should not have said. We have, made, we have had actions. Paul gives a list in the middle of chapter one about uh, murder and stealing, but also included that are things like not obeying our parents and lying and gossip and bitterness. And what we learn is that all of us are guilty. All of us have broken the law of God. And because of that, we stand before a holy God as judge, justly convicted. God looks at us and rightly declares us guilty according to the law of God. And because he is all-knowing, because he is wise, because he is perfect, there is no uh, inadequacy in his judgment. There is no shortfall, nor shortcoming. And so because we have been justly convicted and found guilty, then we are rightly sentenced. Because the law not only tells the individual the parameters of life, but it also gives prescription to what happens if someone breaks the law. And that's true in our land as well. In the United States, it's not just you can't go over this speed limit, but if you do go over this speed limit, here's how much the fine is going to be. You can't steal. If you do steal, here's what the reaper percussions are. In the same way, the law of God not only prescribes how we are to live and what holiness and righteousness looks like, but it also tells us if you fall short of moral perfection, if you fall short of the righteousness of God, then here is the sentence, and the sentence is death. And it's not just physical death. It is a separation of the soul from God forever in a place of torment called hell. And Paul helps us to understand that justly convicted and rightly sentenced, we are unable to save ourselves. We can't do it. You can't be good enough. You can't look at the judge of the universe and say, well, I will just try harder. I will do better. The murderer can't look at the judge and say, I know I killed that person, but other than that, I'm good, so let me go. That's not how this works. And we can't do it either. We can't look at a holy God and say, I'll just do better. I'll be more religious. I'll go to church more. Those things will not earn, they will not earn his favor, nor will they earn our salvation from the sentence. And so Paul brings us through the first couple of chapters of Romans, laying out that this is where we are at. This is the state of each individual. And then we get to chapter 3, and the glorious words, but now, but now, but now, we have the opportunity to be justified by faith. How? Because God has come in the flesh. He lived a perfect life. Jesus Christ lives a perfect life, not deserving death, not deserving punishment of any kind, and he voluntarily laid his life down. He took our punishment upon the cross, being separated, being punished by God, being whipped and beaten and going through that horrific, that horrific death of the cross, and then also having God turn his back upon him and being separated from God and experiencing that on our part as well so that he could pay our penalty so that now, so that now when God looks upon those that receive that gift, when they, he looks upon those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, he no longer sees their moral deficiency, but rather he sees Christ's moral perfection. And no longer are we rightly convicted, but now we are rightly found innocent. Now no longer do we face a sentencing. Now we face a blessing. 
And it is amazing. That is worth a thank you. That is worth an amen. And so Paul goes on to chapter 5 to rejoice in our new position. Now, no longer are we enemies of God. Now, we are at peace with God. Now, no longer are we uh, without Uh, Are we unsure of ourselves? But now we are secure in our grace before him. Now no longer are we uh, nervous about what is to come, but rather we have hope of what is to come, an assurance. Uh, We don't just simply cross our fingers and toes and hope we get to heaven. Now because Christ has bought us, because he has redeemed us, we know that heaven awaits us and the glory and the presence of God. And so we rejoice in it. And not only do we rejoice about what is ahead, but we understand that he allows us to rejoice in the here and now, that we deal with life differently because what he has done for us, including rejoicing in our sufferings. Because we don't see things as pointless anymore. We don't see things as just happen chance, but rather we trust that the Lord is in work in all things, even when we grieve, even when we have sorrow. And so Paul rejoices in chapter 5 over these great things that God has done, the the great news of the gospel and what it accomplishes in our lives. And in chapter 6, he turns his attention momentarily, as I've said already, he turns his attention momentarily to say, okay, what now then? Like, what do we do now? In light of this change of position because of the blood of Jesus Christ, what do we do now? And what we see in chapter 6, what we see in chapter 6 is Paul making the point that a saved life is a changed life. Paul is making the point that a saved life is a changed life. And there's two things particularly that we're going to see. One, that justification by grace is not the end of salvation, but rather it is the beginning of salvation. Justification, if you'll remember, is that point, that moment when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus covers us with his righteousness and we go in a moment from being guilty before God to being innocent before God. That's justification and it is glorious. It is worthy of excitement and praise and all of the gladness that we can have. But it's not the end. If you stop there with salvation, then friend, you have missed a whole bunch of stuff. Because what comes after is what Alan was talking about earlier. What comes after is sanctification. God doesn't desire that you become a Christian and then just stay in that form. But God desires to mature you to the point you look more and more like Jesus Christ until that moment when either he returns or we pass on to him and we enter into his glory and we are perfected before him in body and soul. And that's called glorification and that gets really exciting. Not that I'm excited this morning, but that gets really exciting. But there's this middle part of sanctification, right? And that's an ongoing process that happens day in and day out as God chisels away. And there's times when sanctification is fun. There's times when sanctification, we, have, we grow by leaps and bounds, and it's cool to, to run up to the, the chart of faith and mark our spot and go, look at how much I've grown from here to here. And that's exciting, What we forget is in that time, sometimes sanctification is painful. Sometimes there's growing pains that happen. Sometimes there's life lessons that happen. Sometimes it's not an easy thing. 
as he chisels away the world so that we can see Christ. But it's a process that needs to happen just as when a baby is born, we're so excited about that, right? A baby is born and there is great excitement and there's great praise and there's rejoicing over this new life. But there's an expectation, right? The expectation is that that baby's gonna grow. There are times that I miss baby Rosemary. I miss, the, I miss laying her somewhere and her staying there. <laughs> I miss the cuddles without protest. I miss those things. But I so enjoy this age as we're seeing a personality grow and as we're seeing her unfold kind of before our eyes. And there's an expectation that that would continue, that there's a maturing process that's going to continue, that she's not always going to think like a two-year-old, that she's going to eventually think like an eight-year-old and a 12-year-old and a 16-year-old, that eventually she's going to learn all of these skills and she's going to have new passions and new things that happen. And eventually, hopefully, if we have the grace of God in our lives, she will be a productive, meaningful adult that contributes to society and knows her Savior. That's the hope. And if that doesn't happen, then there's expectations that are unfulfilled. In the same way, when Christ saved you, he doesn't want you to be a baby Christian forever. He expects you to grow. And if you do not, there's unmet expectations there. And so Paul wants us to see that justification by grace is not the end. It is merely the beginning. He wants us to understand that we have been saved, that we may live, now live differently. Christ did not die on the cross so that you could accept him by faith and then turn around and go back to doing what you were doing beforehand. That's not why he died. He died, he gave of his life so that when you came to him in faith, that your life might be changed forever. That you're going to have different passions, that you're going to have different desires, that you're going to have a different purpose, that you're no longer going to be you, that you're going to be you in Christ. And that is a whole different thing. That is a whole different identity that he has in store for you. Excuse me. And so Paul begins to lay this out. And he uses two pictures, two illustrations to put these things on display. The first illustration that he uses is baptism. The first illustration that he uses is baptism. Look with me back at chapter 6. He says, starting in verse 1, What shall we say then? Are to weak to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. In other words, are we to live life the way that we were? No. How can we who died in sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So Paul begins to look at this idea of, of justification moving into sanctification and that we are to live differently by first going back to that fundamental 
concept of baptism, that fundamental ordinance, as we call it as Baptists, of baptism that all believers are to go through, all believers are to experience. He does this because it is the fundamental illustration of what has happened in our lives. And you are going to hear me say the word illustration or picture multiple times this morning in the next few minutes because I want you to understand a truth before we go any farther. Your baptism is not what saved you. Your baptism is not what saved you. If you place your faith in going underwater, then you think an Oreo is saved, okay? That's not the same thing. Baptism is an illustration. It is a picture of what has already happened on the inside. It's a picture of what has already happened. You have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you have already been buried with him and raised to a new life. Baptism is just a testimony to others that that has happened. But Paul says it's an important testimony. It's an important picture that we understand that our old self has died, as he says. That when we come to baptism, and, you, and for those of you that may not know, I'm standing in this area and pointing down when I say that because the baptism is under my feet right now. This all comes up and this is where we do that. But when we come to baptism and we have an individual that says, I've placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and I want to follow him in obedience through baptism, then we bring them and we bring them to the water and we do what? We take them under the water. It's a symbol, it's an illustration of the death that has occurred. It's a burying of the old person. This is why, by the way, as Baptists, we insist on the mode of baptism being by immersion. Because the symbolism is important to God, and if it's important to God, then it should be important to us. And so we insist on the symbolism, we insist on the mode of baptism being by total immersion to symbolize, to show that death that has occurred. And there's a little, little temptation there to hold that person there for just a moment so that we understand the weight of what has happened. Like if it was possible, we would let them be under the water for a while so we would understand there is a death that has taken place. However, no one has agreed to that in all my years here. So we bring them back out, okay? We bring them back out, why? Because now, though the old self has died, now a new self has emerged. Paul says we are raised to live a new life. In fact, you might have heard myself or another pastor say we are buried with Christ, raised to live a new life. This is where we steal that phrase from, okay? Paul did not copyright it. So we take it from him. So we raised to live a new life. We have left the dead person behind, We've left the dead person behind. We are now coming out of it, living to Christ. It is no longer our identity, it's his identity. It's no longer our desires, it's his desires through us. And Paul in here, when he says things like, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in grace that we may abound? When he says things like, if sin had dominion over you, what Paul is saying is, why would you go back? Why would you go back to the grave and want to resurrect a dead person? Why would you want to put them back on? That has already been taken care of. 
Christ died so that you could bury that part, so that you no longer were under the consequences of that sin, so that you were no longer under the consequences of the decisions that you had made. Christ took care of it, and he buried it with him. Don't go back to what there was before. And so as we look at baptism, as you see that happen in the life of a church, remember Remember what has taken place in your life. That if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you have gone through baptism, Paul is recalling to your memory that you too were buried with him. That when you made the decision to call him Lord, and when you made the decision to call him King, and you chose to go through baptism, that you buried the old self in that water that that old self was buried through Christ, never to be picked up again, and that you came out of that water new. Jesus puts it in a different way. He says that we've been born again when he's talking to Nicodemus. He says you must be born again. If you want to receive heaven, be born again. What he means by that is this newness of life that takes place, this transformation that God does in our lives when he saves us. We don't love the old things the way we did. Paul is not the only one that mentions this, by the way. If you look at 1 John chapter 3, in John's letter, he says something very similar. In verse 4 of chapter 3, he says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or knows him. Little children, do not let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning." The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So John and Paul agree here, led by the Holy Spirit. Not surprising that Scripture agrees with Scripture. But they agree together here that if you are a believer, then you are to live differently as God continues to make you look more like Christ. And that means you are going to stop practicing sin doesn't mean you stop sin completely. We don't believe in that. We don't believe that you reach perfection on this side of heaven but it does mean that it becomes more and more repulsive to you. It it means that as you mature in your faith, that the sin that was in your life becomes less and less attractive, and you begin to put it behind more and more and more. There are things that I loved as a child. There are things that I absolutely adored as a child that now I go back to, and I'm like, what on heaven and earth? I don't love those things anymore. I don't, I don't enjoy those things anymore. I don't want those things anymore. And that's a good thing, right? It's a good thing that I've matured. It's a good thing that there are things in my life that are different. In the same way, 
As a believer, there should be things in our life that we say, no, that, that no longer appeals to me. Paul, so Paul uses this picture of baptism to show that there is a difference in how we live, that we no longer enjoy the things that the world enjoys. Now we enjoy the things that Christ has given and that Christ delights in. There's a second picture, though. There's a second picture that he uses. And the second picture is a little harder for us. The second picture that he gives is slavery. He says that we once had a master named Sin. Now, I want to stop just for a moment uh, just to talk about this. Because especially in an American context, this word slavery has a lot of baggage. And it makes us uneasy. And rightfully so. Rightfully so. There should be some uneasiness when we hear this word. American slavery was a horrific, barbaric practice. And we have reason to want to put it out of our self-consciousness. But I want to, I want to say two words really quick. One, Roman slavery and American slavery were, were very different things. Not that Roman slavery was good, not that it was acceptable, but they were different things. For one thing, as a Roman slave, you could earn money and eventually buy your own slavery. In fact, you could buy Roman citizenship and become a very influential member of society, something that was not available to American slaves. There are other situations that we can go into as well, but there, there were differences. This is not to condone any sort of slavery. It's not to condone what the Romans were doing, but you do need to understand that there were some differences. The second thing I want to point out is Romans 19. Romans 19, at the beginning of that verse, he says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Now, this is not the only place that we see this in Scripture. Paul's Paul's thought here is this. I understand that this makes you uneasy. When I talk about slavery and I talk about us being slaves to righteousness or slaves to sin, there is some natural uneasiness with that language. I realize that it's not a perfect picture, but as humans, we have limitations in our language and in our understanding where we need help to see what God is doing in our lives. And so he's using this picture to help us to understand a eternal truth and human language just simply doesn't have the words for some of that eternal truth. And so Paul even understands some of the uneasiness that we feel when we hear the word slavery. But Paul would say to us, don't let that distract you from the truth. And I would say the same this morning. I understand the easy uneasiness that comes with the word slavery. I don't want to ignore that. I don't want to pretend like it doesn't exist. In fact, I would say that it's good that you feel some uneasiness with that word. But don't let that word distract you from what Paul is trying to say. Don't let that word distract you from the truth that God is trying to convey through this passage that we once lived one way and we are now to live completely different. Paul says, we once served a master and his name is sin. You'll remember that we've talked about several times in this sermon series already that 
Paul, uh, through the Holy Spirit, personifies sin. Sin at different times is a king, he's a ruler. Here he is a slave master. At different times he personifies sin. And here he says that sin has some dominion over us. Going to verse 16, it says, Do you not know that, you, that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, that you are slaves of one of them who you obey, either as sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? So we see a picture here that sin, if we, when we are under its control, which is all of us before Christ, there's not a single one of us that can claim that we are not in that part, that sin has dominion over us. That it controls us. It may feel like freedom. It may feel like we can do whatever we want. But ultimately, sin is still calling the shots. That our flesh is still going to do the wrong thing almost every time. Because that's who we are. Paul goes on to say that because we are a master that we have a master named sin, that not only does sin have dominion over us, but sin, but because we are slaves to sin, we are unable to break the cycle. Going down to, back to verse 19, where we just read for a moment, if you look in the second part of that verse, it says, for just as you were once presented your members as slaves to impurity, to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness. So Paul says there's a cycle that happens when we're in sin. That one sin leads to another sin that leads to another sin. That lawlessness begets lawlessness. And we see this true in our lives. That we, we tell a white lie thinking that there's no big deal with that. That it's to protect someone else. That it's for the best of whatever. And then that little white lie leads to another lie. And it leads to another lie. And the next thing we know we're trying to do other things to cover up the lie that we had in the first place. Lawlessness begets lawlessness. We see it in addiction all over our world. A cycle that cannot be broken. One thing that leads to another thing that leads to another thing. And we're unable to get out of it. Paul does give a concession. It's interesting. He does give concession in verse 20. That when we are slaves to sin, that we have freedom in regards to righteousness. Verse 20, for when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Paul does give a concession. He says, when you were slaves to sin, at least you didn't have to worry about righteousness. You didn't have to worry about doing the right thing. You didn't have to worry about being convicted about anything because you were free to that. You were able to do all of these things. He goes, I'll give you that. But what did it get you, he says? What fruits did you bear? Because all of that led to destruction. Continuing on with that passage, he says, uh, in verse 20 there, he says, uh, you were free in regard to righteousness, but verse 21, but what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. He says, yeah, you were free to righteousness. You were free to sin. You were free to do those things. But what fruit were you really getting from that? What was really the outcome of all of that? And the response, of course, is nothing good. Nothing good came of those things. We see the outcome in our world of being selfish, of being 